Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Pulley. This week I'm here with Mike Mitchell, if you want to say hi. Hey, what's up everybody? How you doing? And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of April 3rd, 2023. So Mike, it's always fun when I see you know new defer reports come out, especially when they're timely with this podcast, because I feel like oh. I'm always going to touch on them because there's just a wealth of information. So yeah, let's start off with that one. The first one, yeah, there's just so much there. I mean, like this report is incredibly long, so I'm not going to walk the whole <laughs> thing, but I'm going to hit them some highlights just as you as we kind of you know touch from top down. Um, but this one is about malicious. ISO file leads to domain-wide ransomware. So it walks through a compromise that started with an ISO phishing, like we've seen is a typical behavior because it can avoid the mark of the web, which helps you know bypass some security flags. Then it goes right into an iced ID payload and then some additional cobalt strike beacons to kind of go to the full domain takeover. And there's some exfiltration in there and then finally some ransomware, I think 78 or something hours after the iced ID payload hits. So kind of quick turnaround. But what was interesting in walking walk in this report, well, there's a lot of things the actors were trying to do and it wasn't working. So some of the stuff they're trying to do remotely didn't work. So then they RDP'd, changed some settings, then tried their payloads manually or differently. Uh, as they're kind of moving across the environment. So what's interesting with that is that means they kind of were moving quick, but a lot of hands-on and a lot of hiccups and errors along the way. So that means there's a lot of potential for noise. But, you know, it's a great report to walk through from a technical perspective. I'm just going to call out some things that are worth noting that I think are great things to look at from a threat hunting perspective. One is the ISO payloads. Depending if you have visibility into any kind of email type stuff, it's good to look for those types of attachments just as a key of, hey, are these things, do I care about these things if you're not already blocking them? Second is the execution of LNK. So when this ISO payload actually hit, it uh, mounts you know, on the virtual drive and then gives you what looks like just a link to click into. And that kicks off the CMD. So one of the things to really note with a lot of behavior in general, not in just this specific report, but others. When you see a lot of CMD slash C arguments, it's always interesting. So that's what this LNK, the shortcut link actually kicks off. Um, you can tell if someone had to click it too because the parent process would be explore.exe. But when you see that slash C, it basically is saying, hey, run you know CMD exe with this command line. And when you see those in repetition, it means that sometimes they're like uh, run from macros or run from bat files or, or specific payloads in general that's how they like to use the cmd so it's a good just pattern to kind of be aware of there's also was some ad find which we've seen a lot of especially with ransomware groups ad find helps you discover different things in the domain and you can look up just the ad find tool because it's an open tool and look at this some of the arguments that are being used especially in the report you can kind of match up some behaviors that way 
there's also a lot of remote WMI execution. And this is kind of common when you see some Cobalt Strike stuff. But when you understanding how remote WMI looks like when, when remote, uh, remotely executed is also a good flag. DC syncs, it's something to take note of. I feel like it's an easy log. People just kind of forget to look at or have any kind of alerting set up. But DC syncs are still a popular way to just kind of clone the domain. There was rclone, which is another tool we've seen a lot of, especially with ransomware groups when they exfil. Usually they, this one did do mega IO, but there are some other locations they can exfil to. Pay attention to some of the arguments in this report for that, but you know, rclone arguments and patterns there are pretty strong. Um, and then one of the things I'll get to even later, but the, the PowerShell usage of the web client download string kind of pattern. A lot of actors still like to use that. Um, so you know, those direct calls of PowerShell that way are good to be aware of. And then something that I even noticed in this report, so they did make a scheduled task for persistence, and it's a scheduled task that runs a DLL. And for some reason, this must be something with, I guess, the tools used to generate those malicious DLLs. But right. usually when you do a, like a run 32 DLL, they'll, like you, you run 32 DLL, mention the DLL, and you have to mention the entry point to kind of execute in that DLL. A lot of actors just use pound one. I'm just... I've seen that in so many reports, or maybe that just makes it default to uh, just a default entry point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it's see it all over the place. So it just seems like a really telling thing would say it would be standard for other common DLL execution. Uh, and then they did circumvent Defender. I guess Defender was getting in the way a lot when I talked about how they had to manually right. chew through different things. But it was interesting because we've seen where people actually disable or whitelist things in Defender. They just right. did a straight up uninstalled Defender, um, oh, okay. which was wild. Right, yes. What that looks like for people that aren't aren't looking at the report directly, it's just a PowerShell command that has the uninstalled dash Windows future, and then you can put the flags for Defender. And then uh, the last thing I want to note is there was a lot of drops. I mean, this was pretty quick, so they had to drop their whole tool set pretty quickly on, on the environment. And they use a lot of open source offensive tools, like Clixania proc dump to dump LSAS and stuff, and they didn't change any of the names, uh, which I thought was interesting, kind of lazy, but I guess they've had enough success moving this fast in an environment that they didn't have to worry about it. So, but yeah, those are the, some of the top things I just want to touch on because there's, I mean, I think that high level of maybe half to two thirds of the report. Uh, so definitely expect people to dive into this one if they have the time, but yeah, Mike, what are your, some of your thoughts? Um, well, one of the things that was interesting you started talking about early in this is that um, they were a little bit sloppy, I guess, in their execution. Can you kind of dive into this? You said it generates a lot of noise, right? So that's that's really interesting based on their uh, kind of their you know their chain phase, attack chain phase, or their techniques and tactics that they're using. So I guess talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about that, right? Because from a hunter's perspective, uh, you know, catching those bre breadcrumbs, right, or, or that trail in and around the, the the typical techniques or tactics they're used to. I'd be really interested to understand, I guess, why one, they're kind of being a little sloppy. And then you also mentioned um, that they're moving very quickly within their, their process to, I guess, set their hooks. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about the kind of the sloppiness that you mentioned? Yeah. So when I say, you know, when people make a lot of mistakes and they kind of make a lot of noise. So if you think about like every action you perform, you're basically generating a log. So every time you fail, you're just generating more logs. And so sometimes what that could look like too, an interesting kind of behavior, if you see the same executable running 
multiple times or trying to run multiple times within a small window of time, especially if it's one that's commonly used for like lay of the land type stuff, that could be an interesting detection because you're like, hey, someone's failing this, 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 and then they finally worked. And so you kind of have this like period of time and of activity like that. But in this case too, for instance, they were trying to do something remotely, I believe, and nothing was working. And they think it was Defender. And that's when they actually then RDP'd into the box. They were trying to do remote execution things to went in there, started disabling a bunch of things when it came to uh, policy and I think the uninstalling of Windows Defender and things. And then manually detonated their payloads and things there that way. So there was a lot of activity in a short period of time because obviously they're moving quick and a lot of noise. And like I said, when you see repeated actions, which is, you know, consistent of failures, like, you know, people think about one of the easiest things in security to look for is like, oh, brute force attacks. There's gonna be a lot of authentication failures. Right. Well, you take that same mindset and you kind of apply it to what about execution failures? You know, what does that look like? Because attackers know not to make a lot of noise and then we have like locked accounts and all those types of things they have to skirt around. But attackers sometimes don't pay attention to how many times they fail running an execution. They're just like, oh, that didn't work. Let's change the argument. Oh, that didn't work. Maybe we don't have the right quiz. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. And so especially if you see like even this same command run by different users on the same machine. I mean, there's those, those when I, when I talk about behaviors, I think those are really strong, suspicious things to take note of. Okay. Yeah, I can see that in the report. I guess they were banging against the Werfel uh, or just the massive amount of application crashes crashes across those hosts over time, just trying right. to bang away and actually get access. So, those, I mean, those are all things that, you know, you could do from a detection perspective, but, you know, if, if and I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's being flagged within Defender that, you know, you lose connection to a box. If you're utilizing Defender as your EDR tool, that could be an immediate flag that you know, something's probably going on on that that server or that host. It could be malicious. It could just be a network connection, but something to definitely take a look at. And then following up again, mm -hmm. looking at those those logs to see if you if somebody has just turned off Defender, right? Right. Yeah. But again, you know these these reports are amazing. Um, they break it down from a hunting perspective and just from a generalized kind of, you know, technique, tactic, process, how people are leveraging system resources and then I'm um, pivoting. So again, always great to kind of talk yeah. to you one of these. Sweet. Moving on. Cool. All right. Hey, what do you got? Yeah, yeah. So I got a kind of a quick one uh, centered around ransomware as well, but this is kind of a higher level. I tend to find articles that are just kind of interesting alongside of you know, maybe some of the more technical details, but this one is about a, a school system in Alabama that got hit with ransomware, I guess, over the weekend and last week. Um, so this article is pretty short. It's coming off of, I guess, AL.com. I guess it's Alabama's news site, but Jefferson County school system got hit by ransomware over spring break. It looks like they notified state and local authorities, but uh, it seems like they lost uh, potentially a lot of data. Um, mm -hmm. They claim that they're going to reconnect the networks and figure out if all the traces of the malware are gone. But as we know on how ransomware works, uh, who knows what they lost, right? Who knows how right. long they're going to be down? It seems like they notified the authorities quickly to try to escalate help in this situation. Um, rather than trying to deal with it internally, they probably did not have the resources to deal with it. And I'm guessing we'll have more information later. They're, I guess they were kind of tight-lipped about it, but it just goes into kind of the conversation around 
you know, these small state and local school systems, healthcare, we're starting to see a lot more instances of ransomware attacks against these organizations, typically because they're less staffed, smaller budgets. Yeah. But yeah. You know, it's just, it's interesting to talk about, um, just to be aware of, you know, I, I don't know if there's any really thing to come out of this from a hunting perspective, right? But, you know, kind of getting your feedback, Scott, on, you know, as we see these possibilities, you know, these articles pop up more and more, just, you know, what's your initial kind of take on this? Yeah, so I've talked about it a lot when we develop hunt packs and we see, you know, new ransomware gangs or whatever emerging. And one of the things we learn when we look at really technical reports and different compromises for ransomware in general, there's a lot of shared behaviors, a lot. Like I would almost say 85 to 90% of the behaviors seem shared in most aspects. And why I bring that up is when I was looking at for more additional information, right? I did see that in the end of 2020, uh, Alabama school district and Huntsville city schools was hit with ransomware. So, you know, almost, yeah. almost three years ago. And the only thought that comes to my mind is, you know, we learned so much studying how these attacks are from like a hunting behavior perspective, but what kind of communications or lessons learned are shared amongst these lower budgeted, probably lower staff type, um, you know, places, because I think that's one of the big values that if that's not happening, you know, that's, that's not good because there's a lot of value in what you learn over time and lessons learned from these things that could be shared easily, especially within the state. Uh, I'm not saying it's great for governments to necessarily or state governments to put, hey, these are required things you have to do based on these lessons learned because every school has different resources and stuff. But, you know, I think that there should have been some lessons learned. I would be curious if any of the lessons learned from that Huntsville's uh, ransomware attack, you know, overlapped or there was some new things being seen. That's also really valuable information too. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. I think it's, you know, it's really good to kind of keep pace and keep track of things over time for those those types of issues. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And again, with if you're thinking about different school districts, right, they all have their different IT staffs. There's not, mm -hmm. I don't know of a general body. There's typically standards and recommendations, but I don't know if there's anybody actually managing how those organizations deploy networks. Right. There's a story. Uh, it's really funny. Um, somebody I know, their school claimed they ran out of IP addresses. But yeah, uh, they had a you know slash 24 or whatever it was for a number of different computers and systems in their environment. You know, it could have been a, a different subnet or net mask, but they didn't understand that they could set up other networks. Right. So we're talking about. Right the maturity level of some of these organizations in these IT departments, if it's public, private, whatever, but you know, this is all costing money <laughs> over the long run. So I don't know if it would be possible to have like a generalized body and a standard and requirement set across all different schools. Mm. But yeah, I feel like this is going to keep happening unless kind of something changes on, on that per perspective. Yeah. And stuff with budget, right? But that's why I think that, I mean, I do think there's like an EDU ISAC or education ISAC. And I don't, I know it's for universities, so it's a higher level typically. But for people that don't have the budgets or don't have the personnel, sometimes those are really good resources to be able to, you know, connect with. So Absolutely. that's where I really think those things shine a lot. Yep, for sure. All right. Oh, you're up. Cool. So yeah, one of the things I wanted to touch on, uh, and it was really, is a Fortinet report, and they were talking about Moonbot strikes again, targeting cacti and real tech vulnerabilities. 
in this and digging into some other reports associated to it, I also saw that one of the other vulnerabilities being hit was an IBM Aspera FastPex, which is like a file exchange application. But basically in the report, you know, Moonbot and Shellbot were the two things seen. And they're saying it's kind of a derivative of the Mirai botnet. It's basically going out and trying to touch everything that's network connected or network devices. And they, but the, the capability once infected by these bots is really just kind of basic as far as, you know, participate in the DDoS, download files, do some scanning, reverse shell, you know, someone can get into it, whatever the device is, that kind of thing. Um, but what was interesting is looking at the network payloads. And, you know, not everyone has the best network visibility, but some of this that looks like the payload data was even in the header that you normally see in a typical like HTTP request. And it was just loaded with Linux commands, you know, separated by semicolons. And so, you know, it's it's really good to like, you know, even though you might be uncomfortable at hunting at different types of data sets and not knowing exactly what data sets you have, you know, it's not bad to look at these types of artifacts and go back to what you can or cannot see and in this case the network payloads were really interesting because of that because i mean if you looked at it plainly it's it's very obvious something is trying to be run as you know different network traffic's being passed to these devices now obviously these devices will be on an edge somewhere likely or be able to bypass through a firewall because they're all internet accessible um, so you, that's probably where you want the visibility to be able to see this type of behavior but you know, yeah, it, was, it seemed kind of like your your typical. If you don't, you know, patch your stuff, and you know, it's, it's publicly exposed, it's going to get hit by stuff like this. But I think it's kind of an easy way to detect from a network perspective if you have the data. It might yeah. actually detect future type of network attacks if you're looking for just Linux commands being passed. Well, I think there might be a lot of scanning activity you pick up with that as well. But you know, it's just something to mm -hmm. take note of. Yeah, and my first indication on this and, and kind of thought on this article is they call out. You know the malware is detected and blocked by FortiGuard, and then they also list the malware hosts, the C2 servers, and all of the hashes. Mm -hmm. So again, if I'm any kind of administrator of Mubot, I'm just gonna lightly adjust <laughs> something and change the hashes and find a new domain and find new IP addresses, right? Like that—that's why hunting is important because my level of effort to go find yeah. a new host or domain or change one thing inside of that that code base and that changes the hash i now am undetectable by those indicators of compromise right um and that level of effort is very small compared to all of the other trade craft that you just talked about right building those commands mm -hmm. out testing and validating you know their scripts work and that you have that capability so that's why again this is just a great Kind of beating that drum that hunting is the way to go ifcs are great like they do the blocking and tackling but it's very easy to quickly adjust uh where things are coming from and what services you're using on the back end all right so that's my kind of you know these articles are great and again it gives you a lot of other things to hunt for again always at the end of the article it's it's iocs for the most part yeah, um, yeah. you are able to break out things that are interesting you have the hunter's mindset so it's always awesome to see the article read through it from kind of my perspective and then hear your take on it cool so what do you got next yeah, yeah. um so we're going to go into a kind of the budgetary thing we were talking about earlier. So this article is from Dark Reading, and it looks like Space Force, uh, 
is requesting a $700 million investment in cybersecurity as part of the $30 billion 2024 budget. What's interesting in this article, though, is like further down, it says that the $30 million investment in Space Force cybersecurity. So I think that might have been a, a uh, central you know, error on their part. But, you know, let's play a little game. Uh, you're the head of cybersecurity for Space Force and you requested $700 million. What would you use with it? <laughs> if you had that much budget <laughs> at your disposal, and we can talk high level, but like that's to me, that's a lot of capital to go do some really cool stuff. Yeah, so it depends on what they're investing in because there's like three different areas, right? There's visibility, there's cap capability from a technology standpoint, and then there's capability from like the human standpoint. And the visibility sometimes can eat up a lot of that budget very quickly, uh, depending on how much they're trying to address. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from the technical capability, that that's not as big. Now, I know it gets kind of weird because I know some government contracts and stuff like that can be really, relatively large, depending on what resources and tools they're getting. Um, the biggest challenge there I usually see is um, they're really good at identifying the top tools, but not really quantifying the overlap between those tools right where you might have some of the really best tools and then you realize that they kind of all do something similar and a few edge case things and that's where really understanding the ecosystem at which they're trying to defend and their mm -hmm. visibility really helps drive some of that and then the personnel thing is always interesting because you know government's kind of confined as far as you know like the pay ranges and things for contractors and so forth and talent. I mean, they do a lot of money for training. So if they already have talent in place, they obviously can spend a lot on training and that's usually pretty good. That's one thing I think right. the military and government does really well is when they outsource the training and, and get some really good training involved. But yeah, um, but yeah, so like it's kind of hard not knowing the scope of some of those things, but those are definitely the three criteria I would be looking at if I had a budget that big was like, what's What's the man staffing I have and the expertise I have to cover down? What kind of visibility do we have for things right. or what kind of visibility do we want? And that kind of drives in the technical stack. Sure. But yeah. It seems so, you know, back when I cut my teeth in cyber, the big thing was packet capture, right? That was oh, what yeah, you talked about from visibility. That's all you typically heard about. That's why companies like NetWitness and Impulse and all these packet capture companies back in the day, they were making a lot of money. And I could only imagine that like big chunk of that 700 million, if you're talking about building some sort of visibility aggregator at the packet yeah. level, I mean, that's where a lot of the cash would go to hard drive space, right? Yeah. Effectively having on-prem solutions and not going, you know, cloud first, and then even getting in the gov cloud, if you're talking about AWS. And so I guess the conversation really is maybe that 700 million isn't as much as you think it is, right? <laughs> right. Um, get you started. <laughs> yeah. That can pay for the upfront, you know, physical cost. Yeah. Employment engineering, but and I would, is that I would, maintaining? Yeah, and I would say too, like, you know, sometimes, I mean, obviously they have things in place today. So then you also got to think like how much of that is to redo anything that mm -hmm. commonly happens, uh, especially if like the directive or capabilities change or whatever then what you have in place might not be good enough. So then there's the cost of ripping out and replacing, which can be expensive just because it's not net new. But what, what this made me think of, so I don't know if you're aware of this, Mike, but uh, anytime you do any kind of military administrative work, like on networks or things, 
or hold those types of positions with privileged access, there's a kind of like a baseline certification list. It's in the public.cyber.mil. If you just you know look at that kind of domain and, and Google baseline certifications, you'll you'll get the list. But it basically breaks out like your level ones, your level twos, your level threes, and what certifications you would need to be able to qualify for that. And the only reason I bring that up is, you know, if there's a budget increase, there's obviously going to be potential openings for positions. So anyone out there listening, if they want to set themselves up really well to possibly land in any of those positions, if they're interested, it's a great list to look at to say, do I have any certifications or there's any of these that I can pick up, you know, between now and, and whenever, just to kind of, you know, you know, in front of them. I remember some of these things didn't exist when I was in the military. And then all of a sudden it was hit with, hey, you're going to lose your administrative access unless you get the certification. And I was like, oh. And so we had to like rush and train and, you know, get certifications for different things because of that. But yeah, so I think it's a good resource for people to be aware of. That's really cool. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. Well, yeah, it's kind of tricky too, because I don't remember what all the different, they have acronyms for, you know, like, IAT, IAM, CSSP, infrastructure support, stuff like that. So, I mean, some of it makes sense. Some of it, I don't know if they explain the acronyms of what level that is or not. But what's good is it seems like the same surge supply almost in the same column, depending on what role you play. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, we can move on to that last one. Yeah. So, the last one is a proof point article. Then it was a uh, exploitation dish best served cold. The winter wyvern uses known Zimbra vulnerability. I'm not really f familiar with Zimbra, but I'm guessing it's used a lot in Euro European countries, but it's like a collaboration kind of webmail. I think of like Google Workspace, but you know, it's called Zimbra. Mm -hmm. But basically it tracks the activity of the uh, winter wyvern using that Zimbra vulnerability in order to steal creds from webmail by, they're basically appending an arbitrary hexadecimal encoded or plain text JavaScript snippet uh, to the error parameter in the URL for the webmail domain. Uh, and once the JavaScript's decoded, it downloads the next stage of JavaScript, which basically does CSRF, which is the cross-site request forgery. And that's what enables it to capture usernames, passwords, and tokens from that specific user. So what a cross-site request forgery is, it's basically an attack that forces an authenticated user to submit a request to a web application against which it already currently is authenticated. So it kind of exploits trust of that web application. Um, so it looked like it was just a, um, you know, a credential grabbing effort, but what was interesting, and this is what I think it's always good to, when you see reports, just look for some key things about the report elsewhere. And, you know, just looking at just the winter wyvern, because I wasn't really familiar with them. Um, there's supposedly Russia or a Belarusian kind of based, but uh, Sentinel-1 had a report and their report about them, they basically had kind of phishing landing pages where you can download malicious doc documents with malicious macros or steal creds directly from there in, in early 2023. And then Lab 52, they mentioned macros, uh, you know, associated with the same group back in September of 2021. And why I bring up all those three different reports and kind of different timelines is one of the common things if they, you know, other than stealing credentials, was if they landed in an environment, one of the most common techniques used was that PowerShell web client download strings command to pull down things and move things. 
Um, so what, and I bring that up because it's a behavior that persisted, you know, at least to later 2021 and still seeing, seeing an attacks today from the same exact group. And the only thing I saw that was interesting that was slightly different is uh, in one attack, they tried to break up the command by, you know, saving certain parts of the command to different variables and then calling it that way. But still, there's enough there where if you're looking at, you know, some common things there, likely see the activity. It wasn't as tricky as they made it look. It just probably broke up the logs depending on how you're logging that kind of stuff. But yeah, so that, that's why I bring that up specifically is, I mean, kind of cool attack for stealing credentials, that kind of thing. But just knowing that they use that behavior across all their type of activity is probably the biggest win for me. So, and you were saying you found that activity outside of this current article, you were able to do a little bit more research and figure that out. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, so I found two reports that, that called back to the same group. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I um, it's interesting, right, that a couple articles might pull out specific things and other ones. This was probably a little bit more focused on, again, it coming from Proofpoint, things that Proofpoint would track. And, and yeah, that makes and sense. See from a visibility perspective, and it's then maybe email uh, type security, right? Exactly. Exactly. So okay. that's a really good point, right? being able to do that outside research and kind of gather all of those details to make kind of the determination. Uh, and we've seen some of these kind of credential stealing attacks happen outside of just this one instance. You know, there's some Office 365, there's some JWT token manipulation, you know, looking for logged in sessions, stealing cookies and those values. So we're starting to see these attacks kind of propagate a lot more. But again, you know, and I've said it before, kind of beating that drum it's it's really just centered around one visibility understanding those environments what you can actually see then how do you actually hunt for it so this just all should kind of just drive those analysts and those hunters and those engineers to really really understand what kind of visibility you have to be able to even see these things and find these in your environment but it's always fun to, because again, I'm not a hunter by trade. I'm not an analyst by trade, but these articles do a really good job of breaking everything down. And again, you know, seeing it from your eyes, Scott, it's always awesome to to start tracking these down. So, yeah, cool. Yep. So yeah, I think that that concludes this one. Uh, a few mentions before we cut out here. One, we have our top cover, um, which is a webinar, kind of more focused on the managerial threat hunting and metrics and, and security that way. That's our second edition will be happening April 12th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll actually be presenting that one. Hopefully I do a good enough job. I know the first one was done by Brandon and he did a fantastic job. And then we'll be having our live podcasts like we do with the you know fun interactive Discord discussions, discussions and also in-depth experiences based on topics we kind of come up. But we'll also have a guest on this one too. So we get to have their input on some of the things, which should be a lot of fun. And uh, obviously a topical drink that you'll have to look at the invite to see uh, what that is to, to enjoy the festivities. And then we have our hands-on hunting workshop with Lee Arkenault, Hunting for Impact, on April 26th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And that's where you'll be actually you know, getting your hands on some tools and data, real data to be hunting for things kind of that hands-on experience, which is really important, I think. So with that, just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of April 3rd, 2023. 
Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.